pray together. So this is our last Sunday in November, which means next week is our first Sunday in December. And if y'all remember, we typically try and set apart the Christmas month by um, dressing up and doing sights and sounds. So um, if you show up in uh, next week in casual dress, you're, which you are totally welcome to do, you may feel a little odd. So um, yeah, so put on your um, your yearly Sunday best starting for um, the month of December. And there was one other thing I was going to tell you, and I have forgotten. So let me pray for us and we'll dig in. Uh, Lord, we confess worthy is the Lamb that you, by your life and death and resurrection, you have purchased men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. Amen. And, uh, and we who were uh, sinners by nature and by choice have now been made righteous by nature in Christ and are increasingly righteous by choice by your work in and through us. And one day we will stand before you completely sealed into the image of Jesus Christ, conformed into His image. That is our destiny. And we are on the way there. So we just want to pause and thank you and, uh, and repeat again, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Um, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to Your Word that you, would, uh, that you would send Your Spirit, that He would come and instruct us, that He would exalt the name of Jesus among us, and also... Um, equip us, Lord, to do well at this thing called the Christian life. So, would you take up um, take up our time and use it for our benefit to build uh, to build us up in love this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Um, yeah. So, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter sixteen. Um, Jesus said. Um, to Simon Peter, when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Peter said, uh, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so Jesus tells us, tells Peter that he's putting Peter at the head of this grand army that's going to charge the gates of hell. And that the gates of hell won't stand. We're going to win this war um, against Satan and his kingdom. And so what we're going to see, this is, uh, we're going to start looking at Paul's second missionary journey. We're not going to finish it today. But we're going to watch, um, we're going to watch Paul. And it would be very easy for us just to look at Paul and see, like, how does Paul do things? And we should do the same things. But I want you to keep, not in the back of your mind, but in the forefront of your mind, that this is really not Paul. Who are we dealing with here? It's Jesus in his use of Paul. It's Jesus in his building of the church. So let's keep our eyes on that, that this is, uh, this is how Jesus goes about building his church. Now, um, let me, if, if I were going to put a title, it would, be, uh, it would be the imitation of greatness because there's, there's maybe one or two big theological issues at stake here, but the, the vast majority of this text serves just to give us an example to follow as as Jesus uses people to build his church, like to make good on his word, <clears throat> that we're to look here and we're to imitate some of these things. It's the imitation of greatness. Um, <clears throat> there was once a man who said these famous words, Alea lacta est. Alea lacta est. The die has been cast. 
Julius Caesar spoke those words when he took his army across a river called the Rubicon, which was forbidden by the Senate of Rome that no general is to come with his army into Rome. You can't do it. If you do it, it's seen as this act of complete insurrection of revolution. And so when the Senate was getting corrupt and Julius Caesar said, I've had enough of this, he was also a very ambitious man. And so he takes his army who are fiercely loyal to him and he comes and in effect does away with the Roman Republic and starts the Roman Empire and he becomes the first um, Caesar doesn't make it very long and the kingdom goes to Octavius who becomes Caesar Augustus, the reigning Caesar when Jesus is born. Now I say that because if you look at this map, um, if only I had a, a sweet laser pointer, uh, I, could, I could show this to you. But you're gonna, we're going to see the gospel cross an, uh, a, a huge uh, barrier today uh, in our text for today. Paul is going to take the gospel from... Uh, Asia Minor, which I wish I could at least get a shadow. Anyway, you've got uh, everybody see the Mediterranean Sea? Do you guys have a map in your head of the ancient world? You should. And so if you don't, just uh, photograph this in your medulla oblongata. Um, You've got Asia Minor, which is where Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they went to Cyprus, and then they went up into Galatia, and then they went back down into Syria, which is north of Israel. And Paul... You remember we, uh, we looked at last week, he wants to go to the same places and strengthen the churches, but God is going to lead him uh, a little bit further than he was intending, a lot of it further than he was intending. And so we're going to watch Jesus, as it were, cross the Rubicon. We're going to watch Jesus cross this thin strip of water called the Hellespont that separates Asia into Europe, uh, Asia and Europe. And so the gospel is now going to go into Europe. So... Um, Here's the first thing I want to show you as we, as we try and uh, observe how Jesus uses Paul to build his church. The first thing is that you can't export what you do not produce. Okay? If you don't grow it, you can't export it. So uh, look in chapter 15, verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. And then in verse 36... After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And so there's a, there's a principle here for us that, um, that we don't start with the uttermost reaches of the earth, right? We start at home. We, uh, the, the, the phrase is to bloom where you're planted, to be faithful wherever you are and build up the body of Christ there. And when you've done that, now all of a sudden you have credentials to be able to go into other contexts and build up the body of Christ. But we can't go unless we have stayed well. There's a really famous um, story, and I don't remember the missionary's name, but he was very famous in his day, and he was on a train, and the waiter came serving coffee or something, and he, and he recognized him, and he said, hey, Mr. So-and-such, um, you can read his biography after church if you want to, uh, this missionary, uh, he says, hey, um, I've followed your life in ministry uh, for years, and, um, and I want to be a missionary too. And the guy said, man, that's great. Uh, where do you go to church? Well, I, I'm kind of in between churches. You know, there's some problems going around. Okay, uh, when's the last time you shared the gospel? Uh, I can't remember when the last time. Are you discipling anybody currently? No. And his response is, stay at home and be faithful where you are. Don't go to Timbuktu if you can't make, uh, make disciples um, wherever you are. So you can't export what you don't produce. Paul is going to go, but he's going to go having 
spent years to build up the church that he's in. Okay, second thing that I want to show you is that, that the provision of Christ looks like people. Look in verse 16. Remember, Paul split from Barnabas over whether or not to take John Mark, and so he chooses instead Silas, and he departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there. So we're going to meet this guy that you all know because we've exposited 1 Timothy and you've read 2 Timothy um, as well as the book of Acts. This disciple who was there, his name was Timothy. Now watch, watch about Timothy. He's a very interesting guy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his missionary journey. So God provides people. Um, there's, a, there's a saying that uh, as we come to the end of the year and, and look at beginning a new year and look at all of the um, uh, New Year's resolutions and all of those things, which you can or cannot do, uh, it's, your, it's your choice. But there's a saying that says, you will be the same person this time next year except for the people you meet in the books you read. Now, there's exceptions to that for sure, uh, because there's also this uh, God who is at work in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure and to make you and conform you into His Son, Jesus. But the reality is, God often uses the means of books read and people met, of relationships built, of the things, of the, of the input, the things that we dwell on, and the people that we meet and the people that we share life with. And what's fantastic is I love I love this. Like think back to your think back to maybe maybe call to mind your your best friend or a handful of your best friends and think about when you met them. And think about when you met them. Did you have any idea the grace that was to come your way from that friendship? Like you meet this person who's a perfect stranger and for whatever reason you have a context to get together and you have no idea and you cannot be wise enough to plan. This guy's going to be my best friend. Matter of fact, if you want to ruin a relationship, go meet a stranger and say, this is my new best friend. That will, that will ruin it. These things are graces that God brings to us, friends and the people that we meet. So you can't plan for these things, but you can trust and be faithful and go forward. So it's provision for you and it's provision for me. It's provision for the spreading of the gospel is the provision of people in our lives. So we meet this guy named Timothy. Now, Another way of imitation that I want to point out to you is that the gospel can heal the mistakes that we made when we were unbelievers or immature believers. I'll say that to you again. The gospel can and does heal the mistakes that we made when we were unbelievers or when we were immature believers. Now, this isn't directed at Timothy. This is directed at his mother named Eunice. Now watch this. There's a disciple there named Timothy who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So just a little bit of history. She became a believer at Paul's, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So up until that point, she's just a faithful Jew. She's a faithful, uh, law-keeping, law-abiding Jewish woman. Now she's heard of the grace that has, uh, that has come to the Jewish people in Christ, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And she's become a born-again believer. So she's Jewish by birth, and she's a believer now. But Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, 
If you know your Old Testament, you got a big problem there. What is a Jewish woman doing married to a Greek man who doesn't have the, like, she was a Jewish woman who was a believer. He's just called a Greek, not a Greek who was a believer, but just a Greek guy. So the question is, it's probably true that she, um, before she was a believer, she married this guy because Timothy is a full-grown man enough to, um, he's a young guy, but he's old enough to go with to go with Paul. But the idea is she, she grows up, she's born and raised as a Jewish person, and she marries a Greek guy. Which, um, anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. What's the one deal-breaking marriage? The first one, you broke your word to Blazer Wolf, and now you're going to marry the tailor? No, you can't do that. Another, uh, uh, his second daughter, she's going to marry some, you know, wild-eyed Marxist Jewish guy. Now, I don't like that, but, you know, it's tradition, and so we'll yield. We'll yield on the one, we'll yield on the two, but what happens with third? She meets a Russian Christian, and she falls in love with him, and she wants to marry, and he says, you are anathema. You are no longer my daughter. It is a deal breaker for a, for a Jewish person. We were, they were commanded in the Old Testament, do not give your sons and your daughters in marriage to the Gentiles. And yet here is uh, Eunice, whose mother's name is Lois, who is also a faithful, uh, a faithful Jewish Christian. And she's somehow married to this Greek guy. And a, a very important thing, they're fighting over his identity. They're fighting over his identity. I have to put a couple things in the scriptures together for you to see that. So Timothy's a son of a Jewish woman who's a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now the fact that he has not been circumcised tells you what? Does a Jewish mother want to circumcise her son? Absolutely she does. But the Greek father says no. You Now, on the other hand, we're told in, uh, in 2 Timothy that... Um, let, me, let me just read to you Paul's words to Timothy. Uh, about about his upbringing. He says, um, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Who taught him the sacred writings? Paul tells us at the beginning of 2 Timothy. As I remember to Timothy your tears, and I long to see you that you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So you have this guy who has a Jewish, uh, a completed Jew as a mother, a, a Jewish person who is trusted in Christ. And he has a Greek daddy who probably sacrifices to the Roman gods, to the Greek gods. And he's been trained in the scriptures. He's been, uh, he is believing in Christ at this moment. But his dad has also had a huge, um, a huge influence on him. So the question is, did Eunice make a good decision in marrying a Greek? Yes or no? Did she make the right call? The answer unequivocally is no. She rejected, disobeyed the scripture. Now... Under the divine providence of God, is that a good decision or a bad decision? It's a great decision. This is going to be one of the most influential people in Paul's life and in the life of the New Testament. He takes over what is the greatest work of Paul and becomes the pastor of Ephesus. So did she make a good decision? No. 
But she did play her hand well, as the story goes. So I had one of my favorite professors at, uh, at Criswell. Is, is Dr. Wilson, Joel Wilson, is he still there? Or did he? He's not. He's not still there. He, he, I'm, I'm smiling affectionately because I love this guy. Um, he may have quit. He may have, he may have died because he was very sick. And he was very sick because of his years of rebellion. He trusted in Christ at an early age, was raised in a Christian home, and then when he got into high school and college, he just went rogue. And he, he became a womanizer, and he got into drugs and all sorts of stuff. And he told us his testimony um, about how he contracted, I believe it was hepatitis, in sharing a needle. Can you get hepatitis by sharing a needle? Yes. I don't know. Yes. Uh, he, okay, so he did. And here's this guy, his, his role at the Crystal College was called spiritual formations. It was every freshman, every incoming student got to sit under him and he would start with the, just the free, unmerited grace in the gospel and he would let you just soak in that and once you got it, then he would move on to the disciplines of the Christian life, teach you how to read your Bible, how to memorize scripture, how to pray, how to be a part of the, the church. But his job was to, was to walk you through the spiritual uh, formations and he told us one time, he said, look, I know, uh, well, he, he, came in, he came in one class period, and he just looked like he was uh, nearly dead. I mean, he was just so beat down. And somebody said, Dr. Wilson, are you okay? And he said, no. He was like, I, I feel like I'm on death's door. And he said, this is, this is a result of my sin. This is a result of my rebellion. And he said, I know I'm forgiven. I know Christ has pardoned me, and I know that he meets me in my weakness right now. He said, this morning, he told us, he rolled out of bed, and he said, I lay on my face on the floor for a long time just praying, God, give me the strength to get to my chair to read my Bible so that I can go teach class. And he said, I, I literally crawled on all fours to my, to, my, uh, to my chair and cracked open my Bible, and I'm, I'm here as best I can be. And he said, and I thought it was great. He said, God has forgiven me of my sin and he could relieve me of the, con he could heal my body right now and relieve me of the consequence. He hasn't done that and I trust him even so. And so the question is, when you look back at your life, whether it's decisions that you made as if you came to faith late um, in life, the, the likelihood is very high that you made a whole lot of really important decisions early on that are still having ramifications and... Or if you came to Christ early on, but maybe didn't have discipleship, and so you grew up and looked basically like an unbeliever, and you made a bunch of very important decisions along the way, the question is, can God and the gospel redeem those things? Can he raise up a Timothy out of bad decisions that you make? The answer is absolutely yes. he can, and he does, and he will. So don't despair as you look back and, and see the fruit of previous mistakes. The gospel can heal your unbelieving Mistakes. Now, I want you to look at the qualification. What is your qualification for life and ministry? Uh, uh, oh, let me say one more word about Timothy. I just think it's fantastic. So Timothy, it's like a, um, it's like a secret slam of Eunice's mama to his Greek unbelieving daddy. Timothy is a Greek name. It's not, it's not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. But Timotheos. Timae means to love or to honor. Theos means God. So she names him Timae Theos. She, may, she names him uh, an honorer of God, that, that, he would be a, that he would honor God. And um, his Greek daddy, who's not named, he goes along with it. I think that's fantastic. So 
Uh, and she raises him in the scripture. Okay, so what is his qualification? Look, it says in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. That's, that's pretty much all we're told about him, except for in 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that he was raised in acquaintance with the sacred writings. So there's something about Timothy that's very important. He's not just theology. We know he's got a sound grip of who God is, of who he is, of grace. Um, we know he has these things because he grew up under the tutelage of Lois and Eunice, and they poured into him and prayed over him. So he understood the gospel. He was well studied, but he also is a man of character. Now, I want you to listen to um, the qualifications that Paul tells Timothy as he sends him to Ephesus to appoint elders. And he gives him, uh, he gives him these qualifications for those who would serve as the office, the office of elder or overseer. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, can I ask you something? Did you hear anything in there about the man being called by God? If anyone desires the office of overseer, make sure that God has called him. Did you hear that? Did you hear anything in there about like, well, Bible college is okay. He's got a, a master's or maybe an MDiv, PhD would be great. Did you hear any of that? What is Paul's main concern? It's character. Is this guy a, a godly man or is he not? And he looks at Timothy and here's, here's what he knows about the life and character of Timothy. That he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So see to your reputation among the body of Christ first. This is his qualification. Where were those qualifications? What, what's that? Where were the qualifications? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I believe it's chapter 3. It's 1 yeah. Timothy chapter 3. Sorry. 1 through following. No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, also in, uh, in the chapter 1 of Titus, he gives uh, some similar qualifications. Okay. So, Timothy has learned well and lived well, and therefore he gets brought along. So this is qualification for ministry. Okay, now, very important, uh, a very important thing that, that's happening. Uh, I want you to see, uh, we're going to imitate Paul in staunch sensitivity. Okay, staunch is a word that we use for like obdurate immovable, we will not yield to anybody. He is staunch in his belief, but he's also sensitive. He has staunch sensitivity. Watch, watch this. This is amazing. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. So he circumcised him. Remember that. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance. This is very important. The decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, So that's the Jerusalem council. A pop quiz. What was the main question of the Jerusalem council? Should we circumcise them or not? And what was the answer? No. 
don't circumcise them nor require them to keep the Mosaic law. So Paul is going around delivering this letter to the churches saying you don't need to be circumcised. But then he does the exact opposite with Timothy. So what gives? Why does he take him and, and circumcise him? Now, here's the, here's the answer. Paul does, he, he is absolutely in accordance with the decision of the Jerusalem Council where we do not ever yield when the gospel is at stake. We don't allow any additions to the gospel. We don't allow any yielding. It is Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. And he is to be believed upon faith alone, grace alone. We don't yield on that. How much do we give on gospel truth? The answer is not a millimeter, not a nano whatever. We don't give it all. There's no compromise. How much do we compromise, though, on practical ministerial issues? The answer is much in every way. Much in every way. Paul circumcises Timothy, the text Luke tells us, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he's got Jewish mother, and he's got a Greek dad, and Paul says, look, we're going to go into every city, and I'm going to do the same thing with you that I've been doing in all of my missionary journeys. In every city, I go to the synagogue first and preach to Jew first and also to the Greek. And so for the sake of them not getting offended and for the sake of them not shutting you out, we're going to circumcise you um, to, to qualify you for ministry. By the way, how badly do you want to go on mission? What are you willing to sacrifice to go preach the gospel effectively? So let me, let me point out a couple things about this idea uh, that we're doing here. First off, can we deceive somebody to get into closed countries, to get into what would otherwise be a closed door to be able to get in and have a hearing with them? Can you do that? Absolutely. Paul does that with Timothy. He's circumcising him so that the Jews will think, oh, he's one of us. No, no big deal. Come on in. You're one of us. You're circumcised. You're, uh, you, you have a Jewish mother. You're circumcised. There's no, there's, no, um, there's no concern. Come on in. But Paul knows he's not coming in to preach Judaism. He's coming in to preach Christ, crucified and raised for sinners, and grace alone in him. So like Paul deceived the Jews by circumcising Timothy, uh, we can do something similar. And I'm thinking along these lines because we're, we're talking about sending... Tim into an unreached people group uh, in, a, in, a closed, in a closed country. So, this is Timothy's visa into Jewish ministry. Um, we love, listen, we love honesty. We love honesty. And we also love people. And so sometimes there is this collision of what is clearly right and what we've always been taught in Sunday school to do. Okay, let me give you a historical example. You got Jews in your basement and the Nazis come to your door. Are you harboring Jews? What do you say? And you don't even need to pray about it. What do you say? No. 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 I hate those guys. Go get them while you're hiding them. Why? Because you do not owe them the truth. It's because we love honesty, but we also love people. And most often, those things can go together. And we can be totally honest. And we can totally love people, but there are occasions where the powers that be say we do not acknowledge Christ, we do not acknowledge His Lordship, and we are trying to keep our people from hearing the gospel. We can feel free under this biblical precedent, this biblical example, 
to do whatever we can to get past, to, to do a workaround so that we can get them the gospel? Can we deceive to get into otherwise closed ministry opportunities? The answer is yes, probably I should say within reason. Two, can we do things that qualify us for service that do not touch our justification? Let me ask you that again. Can you do something that would help you in ministry but has absolutely nothing to do with your justification before God? The answer is absolutely you can. Do you have to be saved to go to seminary? Do you have to go to seminary in order to be saved? No. No, you don't. You probably should be saved before you go to seminary. But, but do you ha- does that add to your justification? No. Does it equip you and help you? It could. It very much, it very much could. Does Timothy's circumcision do anything as far as his standing with Christ? Does it add anything? No, it does not. Does it allow him uh, an easier access to preach to those who don't know Christ? Yes, it does. So we can do some of those things. Thirdly, um, uh, just a, a statement here, that right things done for the wrong reasons are worse than wrong things done for the right reasons. Can I read that to you again? Right things done for the wrong reasons are worse than wrong things done for the right reasons. So let me give you an example. There's somebody who thinks that, yes, Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He came, lived obediently, died to pay for sin, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he will save everybody who believes and is circumcised, or and keeps the Sabbath, or and refrains from pork. And so they go about these things that they have Old Testament command to do. They circumcise their children so that they'll be right before God. Is circumcision a bad thing? Obviously not. Um, they're going to um, they're going to adhere to the um, to the Levitical um, dietary code. Is that an evil thing? Please say no. It's in the scripture. No, it's not an evil thing. They're doing things that are perfectly legitimate, but they're doing it for the wrong reason. So they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason to be to be justified before God. And Paul says that puts them outside of Christ. It is a damning error. Now, compare that to a different situation where somebody's doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Or a story one time, I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again because it's one of my favorite stories, that there's a church that's doing a major uh, fundraising initiative to plant churches and to send missionaries into unreached people groups. And so they're asking their people uh, to sacrifice to this end. To, to spread the gospel. And um, a, a, a young, beautiful girl comes up to the pastor and she says, look, I came to know Jesus a year or two ago. She's a recent convert. And she said, before I came to know Christ, I made a ton of money working as a stripper. And she said, I hated myself and I hated everybody and I hated everything when I was doing that, I felt defiled and low. I was covered up in shame and guilt and self-loathing. I hated it. I came to know Christ. I left it behind. I'm enjoying His grace. And now I, I think she you know, bagged groceries or something, making very little money. She asked the pastor, we need money to spread the gospel. Do you want me to go back and strip so that I can make money to further this cause? Now, do you need to pray about what answer to give her? No, you do not. But do you need to think for a moment about whether or not it's right for you to throw your arms around that young girl and say, 
Man, God be praised for that affection that you would be willing to go back there. We can't get some people to cancel their TV subscriptions to give to mission. Like, we, we can't, there are, there are so many within the church that won't sacrifice a dime to see the gospel go out. And you're going to go embrace a lifestyle that you loathe to be a part of furthering the gospel. Don't do that. But God be praised for that, that value system that would say, I'm willing if you would have me do it. So wrong thing, but glorious right reason. And it's so much better than those who do good things. For the wrong reason to be justified before God. So Paul does not compromise at all. Again, I'm going to say this again and again and again. He never compromises on the gospel. But he does make compromise to make himself um, more able to preach the gospel. To the Jews, I live as one under the law. To the Greeks, as one apart from the law. So that I could be all things to all men in order that I may win some to Christ. That's his goal. And so he circumcises Timothy. Okay, uh, next thing, I'm nearly done, is that direction is never the real problem for Christians. The real problem for Christians concerning mission, concerning uh, building up the, the body of Christ, the real problem, is one of my favorite teachers said, is not a problem of direction, it's a problem of inertia. Do you guys remember back to uh, high school physics? Where inertia is, the, um, is Newton's law that an object at rest tends to stay at rest unless an outside force acts upon it. And an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless an outside force acts upon it. You tend to just stay where you are or you tend to be going in the direction that you're going unless something outside acts upon you. And the big problem within the church oftentimes is that we tend to sit still and ask God to direct us as opposed to moving forward in obedience to where he has called us and letting him direct us. So watch this. Um, pop quiz. What did Paul intend originally for this mission trip? What was his original goal? Verse 36. Uh, let us return. 15, chapter 15, verse 36. Let us return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He has done that. Box is checked. He can go home, right? Well, they they finished. He now has uh, he now has Timothy. So, uh, uh, verse four, uh, chapter sixteen, verse four. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. Mission accomplished. It's done. Go back to Antioch, right? No. Watch this. Watch this. Then they went, in verse 6, they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Listen, can the Holy Spirit forbid you to speak in a certain place? Yes, he can. He just did. So we can't go there into, uh, into, um, into Asia, so the rest of, um, the rest of Asia Minor. Uh, so when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, that's north, but on this side of the Hellespont. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they're trying to go forward and God is closing doors all around them. Okay? There's a principle here. One, one of my favorite teachers has said that noble souls will always want to know more Bible. They'll always want to grow in holiness. And they'll always want to find new ways to make much of Christ. They stay content 
in their restlessness. Lord, where, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? How would you have me serve? So Paul says, I want to go strengthen the churches. He's done that. And now he's looking for new opportunities for service. He's continually going forward. But oftentimes the original intent is not what comes to pass. Um, that we make decisions, we make, um, we have aspirations that this is what I want to do and this is how I'm thinking through this thing. I want to go and strengthen the churches. And God ends up giving, uh, giving Paul something uh, way more than he asked or way more than he, uh, than he even thought to attempt. He's going to close those doors so that he can send him into Europe, which was way farther than he wanted to go. So let me just ask you this. Like, what are you praying about in your life right now that only God can do for you? Paul never knew the outcome of this missionary journey. So what, Paul, what God expects of us is not to know all the outcomes, but just to start walking, right? When I took my sailing class, if you're not going forward, you can do anything you want on the rudder or the steering wheel and nothing happens. The boat does not respond. But if you're going forward, it responds on the immediate. And so God intends for us to have some inertia about us and the inertia that is the forward-moving kind. An object in motion tends to stay in motion unless an outside force like God acts on, on the outside and directs our path. So direction is never our problem. The main problem typically is inertia. Okay, another, uh, I, got two more, I got two more things I want to show you from this text and I'm done. That closed doors never mean what they think, what we think they mean. Pop quiz, have you ever had those seasons of life where you're trying to do something and maybe you're trying to do something intentionally for the Lord and it, he's closing every door at every turn? And you want to throw up your hands and say, are you just against me? Like, do you hate me? Why do you keep closing every door in my face? Now watch this. Can you imagine on a missionary journey, you're trying to go into this place and the Holy Spirit forbids it? So you say, okay, well, I'll go into a different place. And then the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow you? You'll notice that it never occurs to Paul to say, well, he's closing all these doors. Maybe I should just go back home. Maybe I should just turn it in. He keeps waiting, he keeps seeking to discern the, the will and the word of the Lord. So in verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Closed doors are not always what we think they mean. Are there doors closing on you? Trust that he's directing your steps. He's not... He's not shutting you out of the work that he intends to do. God intends to use you to make much of Jesus Christ in your life for his glory and for your joy. And so a closed door does not mean he's shutting you off. It means that he's directing your steps. Now, lastly, I want to show you what real help looks like. Notice what the Macedonian man says in the vision. He's urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, you'll watch what Paul does. Well, let me just explain for just a minute about how, um, how interesting that is. Macedon is the, um, is the home of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was tutored by a guy named Aristotle. Ever heard of him? Aristotle was tutored by a guy named Plato. Ever heard of him? Plato was tutored by a guy named Socrates, or Socrates, as all of the freshman uh, philosophy students like to say. Um, ever heard of Socrates? 
Okay, so Socrates is Athenian, Plato is Athenian, Aristotle is Athenian. But when Alexander, who's a, uh, who is the son of Philip of Macedon, when he takes over, he goes south into Greece, takes over Greece, and Aristotle becomes his tutor and gives Alexander the vision to unite the world in one huge kingdom. And it's Aristotle's vision that Alexander carries out and he conquers the known world. And at 33, um, he passes away. And so this is, Macedon is one of the centers of culture, centers of thinking in the ancient world. And a Macedonian man is saying to some obscure Jewish guy who can't even go home, lest he be persecuted, would you come help us? It's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. Now watch what they do. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately, okay, so he doesn't dilly-dally, like he's not, I think sometimes we overthink things uh, to a fault, that there is, there is danger in being um, thoughtless and moving too quick. There's also danger in being sluggish when God gives direction. They see the vision and immediately we sought to go. Notice the we. Luke is now with them. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what kind of help does Paul offer? It's, it's fantastic that the Macedonian man says, would you come help us? And Paul doesn't say, what do you need? Do you need education? Do you need help in politics? Do you need help learning how who to vote for? Do you need food? Do you need shelter? What do you need? What does Paul assume they need? Obviously, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So when God forbids Asia and Bithynia, it is because he intends for the gospel to go all the way into Europe, which is like us praying for the salvation of Fayette County and God giving us the evangelization of Washington, D.C. God, would you give us this little, this, this would be so cool. And then he gives us something far greater than we could ever ask or imagine, which is what he typically does. This is what real help looks like. Don't miss that when Paul has asked for help, he brings the gospel. Jesus Christ is the greatest help that we could ever offer anyone. And so let us be quick to offer that help. Let me pray for you. Lord, we, um, we pray that we would be um, a part of your work, Jesus, that that you promised that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We want to be a part of doing what you're doing. So would you take us up like you did for Paul, like you did for Silas, like you did for Timothy, like you did for Barnabas, like you did for John Mark? Would you take us up? Would you use us? Would you help us to trust you, to walk forward, to, to guide our steps, to put the people that we need in our lives when we need them, to, um, to direct where we should and should not go? And Lord, would you give us, would you give us the faith when doors are closing all around us? Would you give us the faith to just trust you and to relax and know that you're directing our path and to be patient? Would you help us, Lord, to be, um, to be active and to be a part of what you're doing in this world, to exalt the name of your Son? And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. As we come down from our season of Thanksgiving and come into the Christmas season... Let's ponder for a moment the relationship between the two holidays. Thankfulness assumes that something good has come our way. Thank you for the blank, right? Thank you for the gift that's come. 
It assumes, thankfulness assumes a good that is coming. Now, if we were running the show, it might be a better idea to have Thanksgiving right after Christmas on the calendar. Because at Christmas, we celebrate the greatest gift that's ever been given. The eternal Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could have help. We could have the type of help spoken of in our text this morning. The help spoken of in the Gospels. The help promised in the entirety of the sacred writings that Timothy was raised on by Eunice and Lois. Jesus came as a Savior from our sin. So He came in a body born of a virgin so that that body could be broken and poured out for us. Christ is the gift that redeems us from our sin and reconciles us to our Creator. And the gift of Himself produces a joyful gratitude in us that ought to renew the very cosmos. So here at the communion table is a perfect opportunity for us to do two things. To receive the gift of Christ as offered to us at Christmas time. And to return thanks to God for His indescribable gift. So as you come this morning, come believing, come receiving, come in thanksgiving. You come and welcome to Christ. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, would you, would you enable us to come in faith today to the Lord's table? That we would come trusting your word, trusting your promises, trusting that in Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. That you are our good Father who is able to give uh, far more abundantly than we would ask or think or even imagine. And so Lord, what we ask as we come to the communion table today... We ask for Yourself. God, we would fellowship with You today. So would You draw near to us, making good on Your Word, that if we draw near to You, You will draw near to us. Would You draw near as we come to the table together? We ask it in the name of Christ.